Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history beneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, well, it's been a while since we've had a song. So this time round, we're doing 1975's Convoy, which is basically it was a novelty track. And yet it tells us a lot about the culture of the 1970s into the 1980s. It also brings up the topic that is so hard to get people interested in. Boring! But is super important, and we're living through it right now, the issue of logistics, be it in peacetime and in war, which means we're going to be talking about the greatest general in British history. And ooh, I'm going to say you might not even know their name. And also, we're going to be talking about COVID. And yes, we're also going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine, which is risky because obviously at time of recording, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen next. And this could all look very out of date. But I think the history of logistics will teach us something about what might happen next in Ukraine. So if all of that sounds good. You had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Well, come with me on a journey then. So. The song Convoy, as I said, from 1975, if you try and find yeah, it's on YouTube, you'll be able to find it on Spotify, etc. It's attributed to C.W. McCall, which is actually a made up person. <laughs> it's actually Bill Fry's and Chip Davies. And at times they seem to be talking in a different language. It'll be something like and, and I've, I, you know what, behind the scenes. I've actually delved into this, and I can't wait to do this bit, but I'm going to say... Breaker, breaker, this is J-Dog talking out to all the 18s on the I-94. This is a special shout-out to an angry kangaroo. Be aware there's a bear trap around Junction 17 on the I-94. Come at me, big boy. Yeah, okay, fine, there we go. That's, that's an Englishman attempting to sound vaguely American doing basically CB radio slang. And as I said, what Convoy tapped into was CB radio, community broadcast radio, the shortwave radio kits that basically truckers, in, particularly in America, used to stay in contact with each other and send sort of coded information to each other. It picked up a bit of a sensation. 
Kids were grabbing CB radios. This was, in the 1970s, the equivalent of social media today. Not everybody had it. I remember as a kid being aware of these movies, sometimes seeing some of the films that were, had CB radio in them. And, you know, there was a, a little book of sort of supplement I remember having printed on very cheap paper, basically showing you what the slang all meant so you could be in on the code, as it were. And I mentioned the 18s. Those are 18-wheeler trucks. I mentioned a bear trap. That's a police officer waiting in a lay-by. And I had to look this one up. An angry kangaroo is actually a truck with only one headlight. So, yeah, that would therefore be dangerous, as it were. So, yeah, anyway, there is loads and loads of jargon that I've just mentioned and is in Convoy. And it's, I mean, there was actually a sequel called Burning Rubber, but I'm not going to go there. It's Convoy was a huge hit. It was number one for six weeks on the country and western chart in America. Now, country and western in most countries is pretty niche, but if you're number one in country and western in America, that's a big hit. And on top of that, it was also got to number one in the pop charts, the hit 100 in America too. It was a monster smash. And even though it was very much about this culture, about long distance trucking in America, it got to be a number two hit in Britain, too. And it was a big hit kind of around the world. You know, this Americana is an extension of America's soft power around the world. Whether we like it or not, whether you love America or hate America, you're still aware of Converse or Levi's jeans. And, you know, hardly any country outside of America plays baseball, but we, we are aware of it because it's in so many movies. And be it Twinkies or Coke or whatever... America has this culture that it has done a great job of exporting around the world. And for about 10 years, part of that was CB radio trucking. So this was in 75. Big hit. And as I said, there was a sequel as well. But the song was such a big hit, it influenced Sam Peckinpah, of no less renowned. This great American director created some absolute classic movies like Straw Dogs or Cross of Iron, or The Wild Bunch, perhaps being his best known. What do you want? We want Angel. The Getaway. There's just all these great, very American, except Cross of Iron, which is about German soldiers in the Eastern Front of World War II. He, again, is almost like a bottle of Coke. His movies were notorious at the time for being very violent and very gritty and dark. And I love them, for, for the record. But Sam Peckinpah, who had a, yeah, a good reputation, this was not a sort of hack, that novelty song inspired him in 1978 to create a movie called Convoy, about sort of CB and stuff. At least not as many people were dying in that movie as some of his other films. It wasn't as controversial as some of his other efforts. I'm a 343, need a bear for it, come on. Ain't a bear in sight, she's all clean and green. But actually, what happened was uh, Bill Fry's and Chip Davies got back into the recording booth and re-recorded the song Convoy to reflect better the actual story of the movie. So you've now got a very throwaway song. Basically, Convoy is an example of a one-hit wonder. It was so hot for a time, but it was never really followed up. And unsurprisingly, because even the, the act didn't really exist, as I said, C.W. McCall is a made-up, fictitious character in the first place. This was not somebody who was going to go on to have seven albums. But it, it launched a movie. So because the song was a hit and the film was a hit, it kind of triggered other things as well. 
Perhaps the best-known one is Smokey and the Bandit. It was obviously influenced by all this sort of CB subculture. And, you know, Smokey and the Bandit had multiple sequels to it as well. Smokey and the Bandit, for the record, came out in 1977. For the good old American life. For the money, for the glory, and for the fun. Mostly for the money. And this was going on into the 1980s. Perhaps the weirdest one I can give you is Sylvester Stallone. Now, I'm a big fan of Stallone. I think that because he's made probably more bad movies than good, he's sort of sort of thrown into this category of being a bit of a joke. But I encourage you to forget about all the other ones, although there are some good ones in them, but look at the original Rocky. Just watch the original Rocky without any knowledge of maybe the other ones. If you've never even seen Rocky, you'll probably be very surprised. Go, oh, that's the boxing movie. Well, it is, except... Really, the ending's boxing, and right at the beginning there's a brief bit of boxing, but it's basically on the waterfront in the 1970s. And it's, it's quite telling that at the time, this wasn't Stallone's debut, but it was the first time he was starring in anything, and it was his sort of like one last shot at the big time. So, you know, Sylvester Stallone is not a boxer, he's a bodybuilder, but actually what happened to Rocky Balboa it's kind of similar to what happened to Sylvester Stallone. Their lives are lived in almost parallel. But anyway, the first one is Oscar winning, which people forget. And at the time, he was being compared seriously to Marlon Brando. That's how good it is. Same thing with First Blood. You know, forget about the later Rambo movies where it turns into an absolute cartoon. It's a very serious movie. So I am a fan of Stallone. I think that he has made some real classics. There's obviously lots of garbage there as well. And he's also made some very average films. And what I'm about to tell you is definitely a middling affair. And I'm not making this up, but in the 1980s, he kind of took the Rocky underdog story and repurposed it for a very different genre because there is a movie that Sylvester Stallone plays a trucker, but he's also an arm wrestler. And he needs to win an arm wrestling tournament so he's got the money to deal with his son because he's been estranged from his wife and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> There's literally footage of him driving a truck, but also with one hand he's pumping iron as well. So he's ready for the arm wrestling big denouement at the end of the movie. It's called Over the Top, and it is. The world has always bet against Lincoln Hawks, but a winner never listens to the odds. So there we go. So hopefully I can show you that Convoy, this weird throwaway song in the 1970s, echoed on for about 10 years in popular culture. And here's another weird sort of echo of it. It became the unofficial anthem in 2022. We're talking nearly 50 years after the original one about this Freedom Convoy thing that happened in Canada. Basically what happened that there was a Canadian governmental mandate that all long distance truck drivers, hauliers, had to have COVID vaccinations. Why? Because they're going to be interacting with the supply chain and you need to keep the supply chain going. If there's one thing that COVID has shown the world is how vulnerable and fragile the supply chain is. More on that in a minute. And so there were these big protests, particularly by these truckers who tried to basically jam up Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, with traffic everywhere to sort of show their displeasure. And many of them were blaring out Convoy, which is a very joyous, fun song. It is 
anti-authoritarian, but, you know, it's sort of tweaking the nose of the local police officers, not trying to resist the government or pretend a pandemic isn't happening. See, there we go. Convoy has this bizarre grip on the popular imagination. You know, I've done things like ABBA, and I've done stuff like Stand and Deliver and Boney M, but Convoy is perhaps the least of all of these songs, and yet has one of the longest histories of, of any of these musical acts that I've covered. This links us into the area of logistics. Now, I don't want people to roll your eyes about this because this is important and it leads us into lots of different topics. So the thing is, you had to have remembered at the beginning of the first lockdown in March of 2020, which in some ways feels like yesterday and in other ways feels like 15 years ago. That's just the way the world is at the moment. But there was this mass panic of, of all things, toilet paper. Now, there are many things that you might want to get at the start of a respiratory illness outbreak. Masks are a good thing. Things like hand sanitizer and detergents to clean surfaces. But one of the symptoms of COVID was not diarrhea. It was many things, but that wasn't really one of the things. But suddenly there was just this panic buying. And what it shows you is that the supply chains that exist in the modern world, in modern society, in an urban society, this thing, look, your local supermarket, you go there every week and you buy the food and you just assume the food is going to be there. But there isn't a farm in the back. I encourage you, for any fruit that you buy, have a look at the sticker and see where has it come from. Because if it's in the middle of winter where you are, then people aren't growing blueberries. They have to have come from a, basically a biome that is very different, probably in the Southern Hemisphere, where it's the middle of summer. And unsurprisingly, in my local supermarket, my blueberries come from Chile. So the carbon footprint on those blueberries is huge. Our ancestors, little shout out actually to my mother. Hello, Mom. Who wrote a book called 40 Camel Girls. She's American and she did this remarkable thing in the 1960s. She took a job in Britain because she wanted to see the world a little bit. And then there was this opportunity to go to do an overland trip from from London to Istanbul in modern-day Turkey, which was quite the adventurous trip for a, a young woman from small-town America. And during that process, she fell in love with this Turkish guy who turns out to be my dad, spoiler, and he then had to do his military service. So she was given this remarkable choice of like, look, we've only been going out for like five months, but I'm going to have to go to Turkey. You're more than welcome to come with me. You can stay with my family who can't speak English and you can't speak Turkish. And Turkey in the 1960s might as well have been Turkey in the 1930s. It's got nothing in common with the way you grew up, lady, in America. And fortunately for me, she said yes. And she wrote a book about her, this sort of culture clash experience. It's sort of heartwarming and it's very different. And it's, you know, it's all true stories. And it's called 40 Camel Girl. It's explained why it's called 40 Camel Girl in the book. But one of the things she describes is when certain fruits come into season, because refrigeration still wasn't common in most houses in, in Turkey in the 1960s. And certainly they weren't shipping stuff over from Chile or anything like that. So when the fruit came in, like apples, peaches, watermelon, etc., 
You just ate loads of it. You ate it till you became sick of it, but you knew you weren't going to eat any more of it for another year. So it was like, oh, this is the season for cherries and, and things like that. So it's a wonderful reminder of basically how our ancestors used to live, and we just don't live that way anymore. But what COVID showed, starting off most stupidly with toilet paper, but another shout out for, for one of my books. I wrote a book. I wasn't going to write any more novels, but I ended up writing a historical novel called Edge of Life, which compares basically COVID with the Spanish flu outbreak. The story is around two nurses, both living in New York, distantly related to each other. One's basically in the 1920s and the other one is in the 2020s. So this was separated by 100 years. And it shows you the similarities between the situations separated by a century. And one of the things I wrote was I changed my experience in my local British supermarket and put it into the words of this American nurse. And basically, I described what it was like going round at the very beginning of lockdown and how everybody was panic buying everything. Well, there's so little left. Mom, let's just grab what we can and get out of here. And so you went to things like the pasta aisle and there's nothing left. It's all gone. Why do you need five kilos of pasta? Because I don't know when the next lot's coming in. It'll be coming in next week, like it always does. But if suddenly everybody is buying five times what they need right now, the logistical process just shuts down. It breaks, it breaks down. It cannot force enough food through the system fast enough to deal with this incredible spike in demand. And I remember the horrors of just looking around this just very average local supermarket and thinking, my God, this is what it was like at the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, I'm begging to buy stuff and there's nothing here. There's absolutely no fresh fruit and vegetables. They've all gone. But there's sort of like the longer lasting stuff like rice and pasta also evaporated. You know, what am I going to feed my family with? Nappies, diapers in America. There's plenty of those, but uh, it's not very edible. And so, you know, there's this sort of like pang of, of panic. Now, I didn't find the stuff I wanted, but I managed to find enough food to, to like go for the week. And funnily enough, the next week there was stuff there. And of course, we had to queue outside and had to stay two meters apart. And we had the masks on as well. You know, it's a hugely impactful once in a generation kind of kind of feeling doing that. It was so weird. And to this day, all the supermarkets, not just my local one, They've got gaps in the aisles. Now, look, there's plenty of pasture and stuff like that. But because the global logistical supply chain was so damaged by COVID. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Things like China, for example, they have a zero COVID policy, which is a weird phrase because nobody's pro-COVID. But what they're saying is that we're not vaccinating people. We'll just do lots of local shutdowns which kind of makes sense. And China's very good at getting the local populations to do what they want. So, you know, their lockdowns are fairly effective. But the problem is, if that lockdown is in the middle of, let's say, a bunch of people creating computer chips for iPhones, then, you know, if that lockdown lasts for, for a month, that's a month that iPhone computer chips aren't being made, and there's going to be a sort of like a, a lack of, of iPhones. Now, the real version of that I'll, I'll come to in a moment. But going back to it, so not only is it fact that there's been lockdowns, which means less people are on the sort of shop floors to make stuff or to produce stuff or to, to get farm produce, you know, into trucks out to, to supermarkets and so on and so forth. But it also means the international shipping lanes. It's all very carefully regimented about when ships come in and out of dock. And at the moment, still more than two years after this all sort of like hit, basically all the, the ships are in the wrong parts of the, of the world. And there's still disruption two years after the initial first wave of COVID swept around the world. And it's still going to take months to sort it all out. And of course, in the meantime, demand's coming up again. So, you know, give me more, give me more. We're seeing spikes in demand, which the factories are unable to keep up with. The real life example for me, I've talked about food. Now I'll talk about a, a real chip example, the PlayStation 5. PlayStation 5 launched in the middle of this mess, and unlike all the other PlayStations or Xboxes, this one, you know, it was heavily marketed like all the other ones, but they didn't have enough of them. And so I'm in, in Britain, and I sort of resisted it for a year, thinking, well, you know, look, I, I would like a PlayStation 5, and I've saved up some money for a PlayStation 5, but it seems a real hassle to get them. So I waited for more than a year before I started looking into it, and even 13, 14, 15 months after launch, they were still basically impossible to find. And what triggered me was the fact that I loved, and I've mentioned this in my episode on Horizon, Forbidden West, Horizon Zero Dawn, you know, depending which one you want to get. More than they'd have done for us if this thing didn't work. Uh, if it didn't work, it could have not worked. But what I ended up having to do was go onto eBay and pay over the odds for it which is something I wouldn't have dreamed of doing in the time of the PlayStation 4 or the Xbox 360 or whatever. This is where there is not enough supply to reach the demand. Another example of logistics affecting us today right now in the real world. But now I'm going to go back. 
I'm going to talk about, uh, I mentioned him at the beginning, the, what is largely considered by military historians the greatest general in British history. Now, you might argue a whole bunch of people, and if you're, say, Scottish, you might go for somebody like Robert Bruce, etc. But, generally considering, if you sort of like look at the big picture, John Churchill, yes, his sort of great, 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 great grand, grandson was Winston Churchill, but John Churchill was at the time a pretty obscure, very low member of the aristocracy. We're talking about the very late 1600s going into the 1700s. And the reason why he's not well known is this man was not a great speechwriter, for example. And also he didn't put himself in personal harm's way. So he's not like Julius Caesar. And also he was fighting in a war that has been largely forgotten, the War of Spanish Succession. Know much about that? It's one of these typical European-wide wars where at the end of it, not a huge amount changed, and it's a little unclear. You really have to know your politics of the 1700s to understand why everybody's fighting around Spanish succession, for heaven's sakes. But the point is, France gets a bad deal, if you like. The, the joke is uh, France is forever surrendering and so on and so forth. If we are to re-establish our position in the world, the army must return to its traditional role, the very reason for which it existed in the first place. We must invade France. This is absolutely not true. If you look statistically, France has won more battles in Europe than any other country. And, you know, we, we talk about the great victories of the Hundred Years' War, even though there was no such thing as the Hundred Years' War. But if you look at over, over time, yes, Agincourt killed a lot of Frenchmen. But by the end of this era that we call the Hundred Years' War, French won it. The English and Welsh were roundly defeated. Sorry about that. And, you know, the flip of that would be somebody like Napoleon, where, yeah, look, Napoleon ultimately lost. But for most of the time, he won. And he did so all over Europe and, and, and on other continents, too. You know, the, the, the performance of French armies, basically France, for most of medieval and early modern history, France was the power. France was the one you had to watch out for because they generally were ahead of the curve militarily and fought like lions. It's just we all remember World War Two, and yeah, that that that's what happened. But you know, people forget in World War One, they fought really hard and you know stopped the German advances. But also being very French, they the French soldiers decided to go on strike at one point as well. So we're talking about the War of Spanish Succession, and we're talking about a time when France was the number one power, and you know really pushing out its it projecting its power into areas beyond its borders. And so John Churchill was the British representative. And we can actually talk about him being the British representative because during his tenure as a general, it went from being sort of like England and Scotland to the Act of Union in 1707. So it's now Great Britain. OK, so he was in charge of armies that also included Scots as well. And he performed brilliantly at places like the Battle of Blenheim, uh, at the Siege of Lille, you know, so he was actually fighting in France, for example, and the Battle of Malplaquette. That wasn't necessarily a crushing victory, but it was the basically considered to be the bloodiest battle in the 1700s, and he won it. I mean, it was a narrow victory, but it was one of these ones which was such a grindstone the French army had difficulty recovering their lost resources after it, and others as well. And unlike other generals, you know, like the Duke of Wellington, for example, or Monty from, from World War II fame, 
we actually built a palace to say thank you very much, John Churchill. And that's what, and I mentioned it just in passing there, there was this town in modern-day Netherlands called Blindheim, where there was this battle against the French, where the French were just utterly outmaneuvered and completely crushed by the genius of John Churchill. Blindheim in English is Blenheim, and that's why you have Blenheim Palace, even though the nearest town is Woodstock. It's not, you know, Woodstock Palace. It's named after the battle, and I can't think of another general who got a big old palace in memory of their efforts. I mean, John Churchill himself is really interesting. He only started his career, really, when he was middle-aged. Earlier in his career, he'd actually been seen as sort of like an enemy of the government. He's an interesting character, but if you want to sort of wear his rousing speeches or, you know, hand-to-hand combat, none of that's there. But the other thing, the reason why he was able to beat the French was something very boring. Logistics. Let me tell you some stories, and you'll see how revolutionary he was. So what generally all armies of the time would do is the soldiers would keep marching and marching and marching and then they would set up camp at the end of the day but if you've marched all day and then spend your time setting up camp and defenses and things like that you're going to be more tired for the battle the next day mother what do you want did you want to go to the battle this morning <laughs> oh my god it's 11 o'clock <laughs> What John Churchill did is he he actually had basically a whole sort of supply division that sort of set up the infrastructure for the soldiers so the soldiers could concentrate on the fighting bit. He also made sure they got paid on time because there's nothing like a bit of morale boost to actually be paid for the job that you're doing considering it's a very dangerous job being a soldier. On one occasion he'd worked out that basically they would need a bit of a resupply so the soldiers literally marched into camp to find a huge pile of boots waiting for them because their boots were wearing out. It's that kind of care that means you're getting the most out of your army. But here's the thing that really tickles me, and if you don't believe me, you can go to Blenheim Palace today, if you're close, I guess, and you can have a look at the beautiful paintings and tapestries. And if you see a general in some kind of battle setting, it's basically saying, look at the battle I was in, look at the battle I won. So you tend to get the general at the front, and, you know, the battle's all going on in the background, lots of sort of exciting action going on there. But in one of these tapestries, it isn't the battle that gets the sort of the, the main focal point, or even John Churchill. It's a cart, which is sounds weird, but this is his genius. Because again, in those days, all military maneuvers tended to need cattle-driven carts with four wheels. You know, the, you, you've all seen them in the movies, the sort of two big cows pulling along this big old cart along some sort of muddy pathway. And let's face it, early modern roadway system around Europe and Britain wasn't the best, okay? So you basically could only move as fast as your baggage train. And also, in which direction are you coming? There's no option for it. The cattle are going to have to use that pathway. So you know where they're coming from. You know which direction they're going. And you also know how fast they can basically move. So what he did is he created this much smaller, so I mean, he's going to need more of these, but there were these smaller two-wheeled, not four-wheeled, carts with basic suspension that were pulled by one or two horses. So suddenly these were far more maneuverable, they could go over the fields, and therefore I'm not quite sure how fast you're moving, and, and more importantly, I don't know which direction you're, go you're going. Suddenly the British Army could move faster than any other army in Europe, and also could go wherever they wanted to. It was like an off-road, like a 4 by 4 vehicle, the jeep of its time. And that meant that there was literally, at the Battle of Blenheim, 
Churchill was able to set up behind the French army. There's something behind me, isn't there? Which is why he won so handily. The, the French realised they were in completely the wrong position. They completely underestimated the manoeuvrability of the British army. I'm talking about the British army. It was called a Grand Alliance. It had other various principalities and territories in Europe fighting against France, most notably the Netherlands. And so, yes, John Churchill was very proud of his logistical prowess. But you know what? It actually won the war. And this is the thing about logistics. We talk about bombs and fighter planes and brave soldiers and all those things are true. You need all those things to fight a war, but you need to also be able to resupply. Warfare and armies are very resource heavy. There is that phrase, an army marches on its stomach. You know, there are situations with the Ottoman armies or Napoleon's armies where literally they would bring along bakers because you need to be feeding these guys and bread is a really easy way to feed them. So this is really important. And this brings us to modern day Ukraine. Now, I watched this fascinating documentary about logistical capabilities of the Russian army. Not many people were clicking on that one compared to sort of some of the CNN or BBC reporting. But you really should. And I'll give you a summary of what's going on. So the thing is, the Russians tend to move their heavy equipment round on railways. So the first thing the Ukrainians did was blow up the railway lines that went from Russia and Belarusia into Ukraine. So now we can't use those. One of the first places the Russians attacked using paratroopers was this airport just north of Kyiv. But they failed to capture it. That was really important because it was clearly the plan was to set, use it as an air bridge to send in lots of Russian military cargo planes to go in there as a supply dump and depot for the oncoming Russian army. We've all heard about that 40-mile convoy that basically just got stuck. And the reason for it is because they couldn't use the railways, they then had to start using trucks. Now, the Russian army has about 4,000 logistical trucks, supply trucks. That sounds like a lot, but by comparison, the US Army that has similar numbers of men in the army or people in the army, they've got 100,000 trucks. So the Russia has 4% of the what the Americans think is the, what we need in the event of war. So that's obviously not a lot in the big scheme of things, but then you start looking. So I'm pretty sure you've all seen those rocket firing trucks that the Russians have and have been using it to sort of like shell civilian areas. But to give you an idea, each one of those salvos, if they were to fire off all their rockets, to resupply, you need one truckload of rockets. So let's imagine you have a hundred of those rocket trucks that are going to fire five times over a 24-hour period. Well, now you need 500 trucks to resupply them. So suddenly you see how 4,000 trucks aren't enough. Plus, also, you can need the trucks for the fuel as well. And also, these trucks aren't tanks. They're quite easy to be blown up. And there have been many examples of the Ukrainians going for these trucks. And, and the other thing is these trucks don't have tracks on them. They can only really use the roads. They can't go across boggy Ukrainian fields. So they can only use the roads. And we're back to what I was saying about John Churchill and the French. So you know where they're coming. You know which direction. If you hit one of the fuel trucks, that all that fuel's going to burn, which is going to damage the road surface, which will make it even harder for these trucks to now get to the Russians. It was also some of the captured Russians early on told Ukrainians that they had three days rations on them. So clearly Putin thought the whole thing would be over in three days. And then they were being resupplied slowly with uh, desiccated. So, I mean, these all dried. They would basically last forever. 
but these rations had best before 2015 stamped on them. So they're seven years old. Clearly, the Russians are having difficulty supplying. And all this shelling and bombing, if it isn't coming from the Air Force, is depending on being shipped in somehow to them. And it's interesting, all the gains, at least, you know, in, in the first sort of like two, three weeks, all the gains were very near the Russian border or very near the Russian bases in places like Crimea. So in other words, they weren't far away in terms of their supply chain. But the further they get into Ukraine, because there's stiff resistance, and because those trucks have to come from somewhere and get there somehow, that's what's basically slowed it down into a, a hopeless quagmire. There is video footage of Russian flatbed trains going to the borders full of things like Ford transit vans and school buses and things like that because they need to ship food, ammunition artillery shells, things like that. But of course, as great and as flexible as a Ford Transit is in terms of like being something great for various companies to travel around cities, they're not military vehicles. They're very they're going to be very prone to break down on in rough boggy conditions. And also forget about sort of like high tech javelins and MLAWs and things like that. You know, all you need is basically an RPG and that'll blow a Ford Transit to pieces. And now now there's just more debris on the road rather than a logistical tra trail going on for the Russian army. So Putin can fail in many different ways. And the Ukrainian resistance is is very stiff and we should all salute their efforts there against you know an incredibly large army. But the reality is, you just can't argue with the logistics. And once I saw that documentary, and knowing everything I know about the history of logistics, you know, there are multiple times where sieges have simply failed because they couldn't get a resupply in. And other times where, why did World War I stalemate in all those trenches? Because they could resupply these troops with ammunition and rations, so they could stay in the same place at the same time. Kind of the first time in history that was possible apart from a siege, which is why we had this basically... European-wide siege going on for four years because of the logistical supplies and how good they were in that situation. So again and again in history, you see that with all these decisive battles that are the things that people want to read about, and, you know, so do I, the reality is it's can we actually feed our troops that's the main thing that's going to make the decision. Do our troops actually have enough equipment to do the job? That's also important. Bravery gets you so far but a full stomach and actual ammunition get you even further. So there we go. All of this has come from the most ridiculous of things, the 1975 hit Convoy. But there we go. I hope you found this really interesting. I'm at Gemdaduchu on Twitter. You can always hit me up there. Look, guys, please spread the word. Please tell people about the podcast. And also... We do have a Patreon as well. It's not very well attended, but it would be great if a few people could help our logistical supply network as well. That, so, you know, you can always just give us a couple of pounds a month, something like that. It, would, it all goes to help keep the, the lights on with this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, hopefully speak to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.